Uh, it is good to be back with you. I missed you last Well, I didn't, I'm not going to say I missed you. I was on vacation, but I'm glad to be back. And I love you guys and love uh, this church, love what God is doing here at Redemption Parker. We're, we're still under a year old. Uh, so as a church plant, uh, it, it is uh, kind of a make or break season in the first year or two because of a lot of different reasons. And so it, it takes a, a brave person to come to a church plant. And so we're, we're glad you're here. And so many of you have poured so much serving-wise and, and, and giving and uh, serving our kids and hosting gospel communities. So I just want to say thank you in this season of thankfulness just to you guys. It's a blessing to be a part of this community of faith. Um, and when you come to a church, you always come with expectations or uh, how things are, are to be done. And when you do that at a church plant, uh, a lot of people come from a lot of different backgrounds. And so I don't know what your background was coming into this, uh, but uh, w- what we've said here, if you spend any time with us or, or gone to our website, is we want to be very clear on one thing. We want to be very clear on the gospel. We want to be gospel-centered. And this gospel-centered movement has really, uh, praise God, taken off in the last 10, 15 years. But as we moved back from Europe to Colorado, we realized it hasn't really taken off in Colorado. So as we talked about being gospel-centered, people were like, well, what do you mean by that? Uh, And so we we, we try to be as clear about that as possible because we want it to be in our DNA that the gospel shapes us, guides us, sends us, uh, fuels our worship, all those things. So you may have come from a church uh, with uh, maybe a slightly different background. Not, not that that's bad, but maybe you came from a high liturgy church, and uh, there was liturgy, and, and the way you connected with God is, is, is going through the liturgy, and, and we praise God for that. We have some of that, but obviously that's not central to who we are. Or, or maybe you came from a church where you felt fed when you left church on Sunday with three new Greek words, and uh, you just, it was just a high, like love God with all your mind was emphasized. And I say, again, praise God for that. And I would hope that to some degree, every time we come, that would be something, maybe not the Greek words, maybe so, but, but there'd be something of that. It's just not going to be the center of why we gather. Or maybe you came from a church that was like, God, uh, God's word is helpful. God is, God wants to help you. God wants to help you with your marriages. He wants to help you in your life. He wants to help your finances. And all of that's true. Praise God to that, to the end that Jesus is lifted up. Uh, but so you felt fed when you left like with three new tools in your tool bag with how to do relationships or, or like God's word does help us in all those things. And there will be times and, and different series that kind of uh, lean more towards that. But again, it's not going to be our, our central thing. We don't gather on Sunday morning primarily so that you can uh, fix your life on Monday. Uh, that's not our purpose. Or, or maybe you, you, you come from more of an emotional or emotive or even a charismatic background, and, and you felt connected to God when, when the lights were down and uh, the music was just right and there was some uh, fog machine and, and lasers. And while we probably will never have the fog machine and lasers, uh, I get that. And I hope that uh, for everyone every week that in some way, shape, or form, you would feel uh, an emotional response to the presence of the Holy Spirit in here. It's just not going to be the thing that we're shooting for every time. The thing we're shooting for every time is that Jesus would be lifted up. Jesus would be the hero. The cross would be, would be pursued, and we would see how his life, his victory, and his power then fuels our worship and fuels our lives. And so that's what we want to be. That's gospel centrality. And so we, we've said that this word, 
from Genesis to Revelation, uh, in some way, shape, or form, you can follow the path to the cross and in wonder and at the foot of the cross just to worship Him. Now, now there are times uh, where reading this word where that's easier than other times. Uh, there, there's times where the, the water seems a little murky and you got to do some work to find that. And then there's other times where it, it's crystal clear and you can see all the way down to the bottom. And this series over the next few weeks before we roll into our, our Christmas time, our Advent time, is, is one of those passages in Luke chapter 15 where the water's really clear. It, it goes all the way down. So if you have your Bible, we'll, we'll, we'll be in Luke chapter 15 over the next few weeks looking at this passage. I'll go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 7 here this morning to, to kick this series off. We're calling it Lost and Found, Celebrating God's Relentless Grace. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 1 through 7. I'll read it out loud to ask you to listen carefully. This is God's Word. Now... The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he Finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he, has come, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This ends the reading of God's word. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Let's pray. God, we, we come before you now. It is a great privilege and kindness to, you that you, to us that you would address us now through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you do that. God, I thank you that you know the number of hairs on our head and you know every thought that is in this place and every experience that we've faced and will face. And so, Holy Spirit, as only you can do, would you apply these truths to our hearts, both individually and together, that we might be shaped by your relentless grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke 15, there's three stories. You're probably familiar with them, even if you aren't a believer, even if you're just new here, you've at least the last one. There, there are three stories with some consistent themes. Something is lost, something is found, and there is rejoicing. And so in this scene, we saw there, there's a lost sheep, then there's going to be a lost coin, and then there's going to be lost sons, plural. You might know it as the story of the prodigal son, but that would to be to misunderstand what Jesus is getting at. And that's where we're leading towards this week. But parables, why did Jesus speak in parables? Well, several reasons. Because he loved people and he wanted to speak their language. He wanted to communicate things that they could understand. And parables are, are both like a window into heaven and a mirror into our own souls. And so uh, as he lays out these parables, there's these ways that we can say, I, I can relate to 
that. So uh, with lost things, everyone here has experienced losing something, right? You've all lost something. Some of us lose things more than other people. I think I'm one of those people. At least once a week, I'm scrambling around the house looking for my wallet um, or my keys or whatever. My favorite feature is find my phone on my iPhone because I'm always logging on. Oh, it fell out of my pocket in the pool, which really, not in the pool, at the pool uh, this summer. uh, And I I scrambled and went and got it. I love that. But you've all experienced losing something, right? Uh, Has anyone ever lost something really valuable? Anyone? I heard a story. Brad, you're not raising your hand. Well, you didn't lose it, but I heard a story because I was talking to your wife this week about something that was lost that was very valuable, the, the diamond in her wedding ring. Right, I know, but that's why you didn't need the ring. But so she tells us, and where did she lose it? In the pool. And so what did you do? I swam in the pool for that's what I heard. So you turn off the filters, and I heard you were just in the pool, up and down, scanning the floor, and you didn't find it, though. And then, how long ago was that? Eight years ago. Eight years ago, yeah. And so for eight years, she didn't have a ring, but last year, you replaced it, right? See, I got this information, so I'm like, that's a good story. In the moment that you lose something and you try to find it, in that moment, you realize the value of that thing. So uh, when, whenever I lose my car keys, every time I'm like, man, I need to get that little tile thing uh, so I can find my car keys when I, when I really need them. Um, but then I think, no, I'll, I'll, I won't worry about it until I lose them again. And I'm like, man, I wish I had bought that little tile thing, this Bluetooth thing, whatever it is. In the moment you lose it, you see the value of it. And so you search. And some of us have lost some very valuable things. Next week, I'll share a story of the most valuable thing I lost and found. But uh, we all can experience it. We, all, we can all listen to these stories that Jesus is saying. It's like, Oh, I'm, I'm starting to get, I, I can kind of see what you're saying the kingdom of heaven is like. I can kind of see myself in the story. That's the purpose of parables. But now, before we get into the story, whether it's this one or the lost coin, or especially the one of the, the prodigal son, if you miss verses one and two, the context, then you will misunderstand the story, misapply it, sentimentalize it, and put the emphasis in the wrong spots. So let's look at verse 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, so there's two groups of people, or there's four groups of people in addition to the disciples and the crowds, but it's very important to understand who's in the crowd. The first thing that Luke mentions here is that there are tax collectors in the crowd. Now, I didn't grow up a Christian, so I didn't go to Sunday school, but those of you that did maybe know tax collectors as like Zacchaeus was a, a wee little man, was he? And uh, something about a wee little man, was he? I don't know. And he climbed up a sycamore tree 
because he had to see Jesus or something like that. I'm not sure how the story goes, but if you grew up in church, you know how it goes. Uh, and, and so you kind of have this sanitized vision of tax collectors, or you were, you were taught. So, so a tax collector was supposed to take $25, but he takes 30 because he's greedy, and, and they're kind of bad dudes. And uh, that's a, a nice story, but that's not true. That's not nearly the scope of it. Rome was in power. As far east to India, as far north as, as England, and North Africa, and everywhere in between. Massive, massive power. And they were a brutal regime. How do you control that much power? One way to do that is by terrorizing and brutalizing the people you conquer. So Rome, you can go to the library and look up the history books. They would go into some cities that they would conquer, and then they would crucify up to 20,000 men, women, and children and put them on the roads leading into that town up to 40 miles out, naked men, women, and children suffering, dying, or dead on crosses. So if you had to go into town and see your neighbor, see, get supplies or visit family, you would walk past all this, and it was a giant billboard saying, don't mess with Rome. Brutal, brutal, oppressive, occupying force across from India to England, North Africa. That's how they controlled it, and they would get conscripts. And, and even though the conscripts were cheap, to have that size of this massive army, we know that that was very, very expensive. And so taxes, but you, you needed tax collectors. But who were these tax collectors? Uh, These were nationals, whether they were Jewish people or or Greek people, wherever Rome had conquered, who who had paid Rome for the right to become tax collectors. They paid the occupying force saying, I'll pay you money to collect money for you. I I know of no cultural equivalent. We talk about our, our nation being divided by right now, but it is nothing like this. The tax collectors were trash. Zacchaeus, on his best day, deserved to be burned alive. And this would be like you living next to a neighbor who financed the murder of your family and it was legal and you couldn't do anything about it. Tax collectors. And yet, Luke tells us they were drawing near to Jesus. Something about Jesus uh, made, made them come out. Or maybe it was that Jesus drew not near to them. He went where they were at. And then they says there's, there were sinners there. And again, we've got to understand the context because in the West, we think, well, we're all sinners, which is true, but, but in the first century, sinners were a class of people. So, so sinners were people that had a, a, a disease, a deformity, an uncleanness, uh, or maybe their job or their lifestyle. Uh, they were outside of the community of faith. And so uh, their, their, their diseases or, or sickness or their blindness was seen as God's judgment against them. And so in, in John chapter chapter 9, and they bring the, the man born blind, and they come to Jesus, and they're like, who sinned, him or his parents? And he's like, neither, dummy. Uh, th- that's Mark's translation, but he's like, you don't understand. And so uh, Jesus would, would go to the sinners, or maybe it was their job. Maybe it was the, the prostitutes, or the tax collectors, or the slave traders, or, or these people that were basically told repeatedly, you're outside of the community of faith. You will meet God, but only as a judge. And so buckle up. You're not allowed to come into temple. 
You're not allowed to, to, to do the prayers that you're supposed to pray. You're not allowed to make the offerings you're supposed to offer. Uh, you're outside of God's favor, grace, and mercy. And so you're the sinners. And yet, again, Luke says they're drawing near to Jesus. Now, this rubs the Pharisees and the scribes the wrong way. It says they, they grumbled, or your translation might say they muttered. It's the same word, it's the same word that the Septuagint would use of the Old Testament of the Israelites in the wilderness grumbling against God. And, and they're basically they're saying this, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. It's not just enough to, for Jesus to go out and, and have conversations in public with sinners. Jesus is eating with them. So even Zacchaeus, remember that story? He calls Zacchaeus down. He says, I'm going to come to your house and eat with you in your house. Something powerful and dynamic happens, especially in Middle Eastern culture. Even today, when you break bread with someone, it's not just saying, I accept you as a friend. It's saying, I accept you for who you are. And so the, the Pharisees grumble, and they're like, this guy says he's a man of God. But every man of God that has ever lived before says, these are the categories by which you, you, you should fit yourself into. These are the things you need to do. These are the prayers, and these are the offerings. If you do all those things, then you can come into the community. But Jesus is just eating with these people. See, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were like, well, they're like varsity-level evangelicals. They got like nine fish on the back of their car. Uh, they got one of the fish. It's eating a Darwin fish. And uh, they only listen to Hebrew music. They only send their kids to Hebrew schools. I mean, they're, they're known for their moral uprightness. And they thought that all of their good moral uh, uprightness, uh, their, their, their right words and their right offerings, they thought that all curried favor with God, that, that, that those that did not do what they did did not have the same access to God. And so they felt that, that they were in a, some sort of special position, that God kind of owed them something for their goodness. And, and they were very comfortable with that. They were very happy with that. And so it's in this context when Jesus understands and hears the murmuring of the Pharisees that he tells these stories. And these stories are, have these consistent themes, these stories of God's pursuit, uh, of God's celebration and God's invitation. So let's look at the story. The first one is God's pursuit. Verse 3, so he told them this parable. Again, he's primarily addressing Pharisees or those that have a tendency uh, to have Pharisaical hearts, which I have. And if we're honest with ourselves, to some degree, you probably all of us have. There is just this natural tendency to think that if I do the right things, then God favors me. And so this is what Jesus says. He tells them this parable, this story, this, this window to heaven and this mirror for them. And he says, verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? It's like, you understand, but, but right away, the story is offensive, 
Right away, he's saying, wait, what are you, what are you talking about, Jesus? So, so we know about shepherds, but shepherds are part of the sinner's class. Uh, shepherds are dirty. They, they don't get to come to temple, but, but you're, you're talking about sheep. And, and sheep, we think of sheep as like nice and fluffy, uh, but this is a very well-placed intended insult. Sheep are not the brightest animals in the pack. <laughs> uh, they're not like dogs or even like cats. Like if your dog gets lost and your cat gets lost and you go out in the neighborhood and call it, and when you find it, my dog will be like, oh, and come running back. And, and you'll just kind of show it the way back to the house. The sheep aren't like that. Sheep, you, they'll, they'll just have their head down, eating grass, eating grass, going up the cliff, up the, uh, up the mountain, and over the cliff to their death. Not even knowing the whole time, like, wow, I'm floating. But... Seriously, in 2005, 500 sheep plunged to their death in Turkey over a cliff. And another 1,500 of them also went over the cliff, but they landed on sheep, so they survived. You ask, well, what in the world? That was a $100,000 loss that day in Turkey. Like, what? Now, the question you should be asking is where the heck were the shepherds? We know sheep are dumb. We know they just go off. So where were the shepherds? The shepherds were feeding themselves. They were having breakfast. They were hanging out. And the sheep just went off over the cliff. One saw his buddy go and said, well, where are you going? <laughs> and he went too. And 500 more and 1,500 more did the same thing. That's sheep. And so uh, this, this right away is, is offensive, especially to the Pharisees. What are you saying about us? Or maybe the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew themselves to be the shepherds of Israel. They thought, they thought with all their moral uprightness and all their teaching that they were somehow shepherding the sheep. But maybe they would think of the prophet Ezekiel too. In Ezekiel chapter 34, there's a prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. And the whole chapter does this. But let me just read a couple verses. Verse 6, it says, God is speaking. God says, My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Oh, they have a lot of shepherds, but they're not searching for them. They're not seeking them out. And then verse 11, here's what God says. Ezekiel 34, he says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so, I, so will I seek my, out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. This prophecy is now finding its fulfillment in Jesus, even as he tells this story. They're sheep. Well, the other thing is the sheep, they, they, they will, they, they don't, just when you find them, they, they don't just come back. But, but you may be asking, well, there's 99. What's one sheep? That's 1%. Tomorrow the market could go down by 1%, and no one's going to bat an eye. Like it could go down by 5%, we might get a little concerned. But, but he's lost 1%. If you got, you know, they didn't have a stock market, this, whoever the shepherd was is obviously already very wealthy. Uh, the sheep will reproduce. What's 1%? Well, doesn't that leave the 99 insecure? Say, actually, it's the opposite is true. 
So it's like the U.S. military policy that no soldier left behind. So I have a friend, his name's Philip, he's with the Pararescue Squadron, a helicopter pilot. He received a Silver Star Medal along with uh, the other pilot and several other uh, of the pararescuers received medals on this day for rescuing, uh, for, for retrieving a dead body of a soldier and rescuing the other one that had come under attack in Afghanistan. And I was talking to him this week and he's like, I can't take credit for it. He was very humble, um, but, but he got this, this award. And, and the, why is that so important? Why, why is it important that he gets an award? Why is it important that we make notice that he went after the body of a fallen shoulder? It's important for the 99 that are going to go back into battle to know that if I go and fight for my country and something goes wrong, you will come and get me no matter what. So for the 99 that are left, it's a security for them knowing that the shepherd's a good shepherd, that if any one of them ever gets lost, he will pursue. And then the gospel, he's not just pursuing, he's relentlessly pursuing. He says, verse 4, and, I, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. It's not like he's going to look around the mountain a little bit and see if he found it. No, until he finds it, God's grace is relentless. It is unstoppable. It will find those that, it, that he is seeking. So that's the first thing. God relentlessly pursues his lost sheep. Verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders so again, the sheep doesn't just come when he sees the shepherd. You've got to grab that sheep, put it down, and tie the feet together, and then put it on your shoulder. Uh, the average sheep weighing 160 to 200 pounds in the Palestinian wilderness, just to walk out there by ourselves would be dangerous. But the shepherd, at much cost to himself, puts the sheep on his shoulders and begins the journey back to the 99. It's the rescuing, relentless grace of God. But as he does that, we see some things about ourselves. We see we didn't need a teacher. See, a teacher is like if we were dogs. A teacher would come and say, this is the way home, and we would follow him home. No, we were just dumb sheep going off, and God comes and grabs us and ties our legs together, puts us on his shoulders, and brings us into the kingdom. It's sovereign grace. And how does he go about doing it? Well, that's the second point. It says, and he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. God rejoices when the lost are found by him. So he's not like, oh, you stupid sheep, come on. Like, he's not begrudging. When he sees the sheep up on the side of the cliff, and he's like, don't go over, don't go over. And he runs up, and he grabs that sheep, and he ties the, the ankles, and he puts it on its shoulders, 200 pounds, and, he, and he, as he's walking down, hey, you got it. Yeah. He's going crazy, right? Yeah. That's what he's thinking at this spot. Well, I've woke you up. But that's what his, that's his attitude. God rejoices in that. And he's walking home. And he's happy the whole time. He's, he just, go ahead. Come on. Thank you. 
go. So that's what you have to see into the story. That's Jesus' point. He's like, imagine, imagine the response of, of, of the Pharisees and the tax collectors. The tax collectors, their jaw at this point is dropped, and a big grin is coming on their face. You mean, I, God, I can't get to God, but God will come after me, and he's happy about it? Oh, he's, he's elated. He's rejoicing. It's not just like, well, God has got to forgive you because that's what God does. No, when he does it, he rejoices. He puts it on your shoulder and, and he begins to walk home. And that's not just it. He, it says that uh, verse, the next one, that God invites us to rejoice with him. Look what it says. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends And his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. We're going to have a party. We're going to go. Come on. Let's just get into it. There you go. So here's, here's what's going on right now. Okay, so this is what Jesus is saying. It is a full-on party celebration when the lost are found and God comes to us and he's like, hey, this is amazing. You should, you should join with me. I'm going to have a, a party. And the Pharisees, their teeth are clenched. And, and I'm, I'll be honest with you. If I was sitting where you are now and not up here, I'd be like, well, that shouldn't be done in church. That's what the Pharisees are thinking, though. What is that? That's, those aren't even Christian singers. What's wrong with you, Mark? I got one more for you. He has a party. the idea. You get it. You get it. Okay. So no more music, but you have to feel that. But, but, but also let me ask you this. What pumps you up? What, what gets you going? What, what gets you, what makes you feel like you're alive again? Because one thing I know is I, I can very easily give away my passions, my joy, my celebration to things that in the end aren't ultimately worthy of my passion, my joy, and my energy. But whatever it is, whatever that thing that gets you pumped, you probably learned it from someone. You, you were discipled in that. So for me, uh, most of my life, uh, I've been a fan of two sports teams primarily, the Denver Broncos and the Los Angeles Lakers. You're like, how did you get the Lakers? Well, I'll tell you, I was six years old. My neighbor was from Los Angeles, and he told me about this guy named Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson. For a six-year-old, I'm sold in that moment. And so I'm like, well, tell me more about that. Let me see the plays. Let me see the players. Let me learn about the sport. And I would learn when 
minute it was, something amazing happened. And then when I was in Europe, uh, I uh, invited my Czech friend Roddick to come over. Hey, let me tell you about the Denver Broncos. And he would come over, had no idea about American football. He's watching it. Something amazing happens. He's like, what? And I'm like, no, let me tell you why that was amazing. And so over the course of the season, by the end of the season, he's like, yes, awesome. You know, they were actually good back then. He was discipled in in how to uh, find joy in uh, what a 20-year-old does with a football. So I I just want to put on the table, let's find joy in the things that God says brings him joy. Let's find joy in the thing that we will, we will be in a full-on party forever and ever and ever. Uh, let, let's be concerned. See, see, the Pharisees were like, well, I got 99. I don't care about the one out there. We only care about what's going on in here. And, and, and one prayer that I consistently pray, maybe sounds strange, but I, I pray, God, would you just shut down Redemption Parker if, if we get more comfortable with what's in here than what's out there? Because, that way, because otherwise we'd be more like the Pharisees and not like the tax collectors. See, the offer is the same to the... What, what Jesus is saying is not just good news to the tax collectors and sinners. If they understood it, it was, it's amazingly good news to the Pharisees. Like, look, you too can be part of the party. You too can rejoice with God. Isn't God amazing? God loves Pharisees. He loves scribes, and he loves tax collectors, and he loves sinners. He says, there's going to be a full-on party that goes on forever and ever. Verse 7, just so, or, or in other words, in the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Because the truth is, there aren't 99 righteous persons. There's 99 people that think they are, and therefore they think they don't need repentance. But Jesus said, look, there's there's a party going on. When you came and tasted the grace of God, there was a party going on in heaven because you came to the banquet. And Jesus says, rejoice with me. So, so, so my prayer is over the next year as, that God would do some amazing rescuing gospel work in our cities, in our lives, in our neighborhoods. And when that happens, we would throw a party. We would throw a party. So where's the gospel in this, though? Well, this one's very easy. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd, John 10, 11. He lays down his life for his sheep the, the Passover meal was to, to recognize that the, the, the blood of the lamb would be spilled and the, the Passover of God's destroying angel would, would protect God's people. And every year God's people would get together and, and have a Passover. And we know it as the Last Supper, but it's the strangest Passover the world has ever seen. Because at every Passover meal, you have to have wine, you have to have the bread, and you have to have a lamb. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John mention wine and bread, but they don't mention the lamb because the lamb's there with them. It's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That should cause us to rejoice and be fueled to see more parties starting in our city. To that end, let me pray for us And we'll come to this table of rejoicing. God, I thank you that you are creating a radical community based on your grace. 
where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every ethnic group, every socioeconomic class, Lord, would be rescued and redeemed by the gospel of grace where there's no boasting, only rejoicing. Lord, may we be a people that seek to rejoice with you. Lord, where we have given our passions and joy away to things that are ultimately aren't worth it, Lord, I pray that you would just disciple us in the things that bring you pleasure, that they too would bring us pleasure. God, now as we come to your table, Lord, may you be honored in all this as we taste just a foretaste of the banquet of the party of heaven. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.